Okay, so I want to begin today by talking about my favorite movie of 2022, and that is the dark comedy The Banshees of Inishirin, which, honesty, reveals a depravity about me. Because, despite being hilarious, Banshees is, without a doubt, the most shockingly bleak movie when it comes to its outlook on humanity of all of last year. I mean, this movie is grim, which I love because, like I said, I'm depraved. But, no, really, it's a fascinating flick. It was just one of those movies that just got stuck in my brain all year. You see, on the surface, it has a pretty simple premise about two lifelong friends, Podrick and Colm, played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who live largely ordinary, peaceful lives on this remote island off of Ireland. This backdrop that's effectively a tourism advertisement for the country, Everything's green. There's those Irish cliffs dropping into the sea. I mean, it is just like a stunningly beautiful landscape throughout the film. A picture of idyllic, small-town life. That is, until one day, Colm Friend breaks up with Podrick. Not because of anything Podrick did, but because Colm just decided he does not want to be Podrick's friend anymore. And y'all, this introduction is hilarious. I mean, I'm talking the banter between these two people as one just decides that he's like done with the other is truly some of the most comedic gold that you're going to find in cinema of last year. It is great. But that's also the trap of the film. Because, and I won't spoil Banshees, but from this breakup on, everything, and I mean everything, spirals downward into an abyss. You see, Padraig cannot accept Colm's decision. So... He presses Colm, who then, in one of the darkest ways imaginable, retaliates, trying to get him to leave him alone, which leads Podrick to again press harder, which leads to more retaliation, more escalation, until by the end of the movie, all of these characters have found themselves in tragedies that none of them could have predicted at the onset of this conflict. And here's where I'm going to cinema nerd out for y'all a bit. I'm going to geek out if you don't mind. Because what's so cool is that everything in the movie across this entire like, escalating conflict from writing to cinematography, all of it mirrors this progressive descent in some really cool ways. The characters' exterior niceties and pleasantries give way to long, seething, hidden rage. More so, this idyllic, lovely, isolated island transforms entirely. These picturesque cliffs go from being an advertisement to come visit Ireland to walls of a floating prison that they cannot escape. A boiling pot of their resentments that build and build and build until slowly but surely they turn their peaceful world into a war zone, becoming this cautionary tale about the hells that we create in the places of our world that have every reason to be heaven instead. Whew! Like I said, it is bleak, y'all. But that's why this movie impacted me so much. See, altogether, it's this strange, funny, dark fable that's both like a breakup movie and simultaneously this rich, profound allegory about the corrosive nature of violence, about the spiral of resentment, retaliation, escalation, and self-inflicted misery that's seemingly baked into our human condition. 
this division, this enmity that festers between us individually and corporately that we just can't seem to get out of us. Despite all of human history revealing that this pattern of being human never solves anything, never makes us feel any better, and quite frankly breaks our world. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Has anyone seen that in the news lately? Go read a history textbook. This is what it means to be human in so many ways. And I start here because it's that broken pattern and, dare I say, it's solution that resides at the heart of what we're covering in our new summer series on one of my favorite New Testament books, the book of Ephesians. This poetic, beautiful, thought-provoking book that is as influential to my theology as it gets. Now, for those unaware, Ephesians is actually a letter, one of 22, or 21, sorry, oh, seminary teacher would fire me right now, one of 21 of the New Testament. And these letters come with very unique challenges. You see, mailing letters in the ancient world across, you know, all of the Roman Empire by foot would have cost thousands of dollars, which means that these letters were painstakingly crafted as these singular literary holes. They are not the grab bag of inspirational verses that we often treat them as. Anyone know what I'm talking about? They are meant to be read together, one argument building because these people had one shot to get these things to where they needed to go to make their point to these communities. More so, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, these letters have a context that matters greatly. That's because they were written to specific communities and specific times and places. Essentially, we are reading someone else's mail, which means that if we do not engage them from the audience's perspective, we are going to misunderstand them. Are you tracking with me? They were not written to us as 21st century Americans. They were written to the earliest Christians trying to figure out how to do this Christ thing in a world that was often hostile to them and quite frankly, alien to their worldview. However, what this also means is that if we read them in context, they have a unique ability to reveal how the earliest Christ followers applied Jesus' story of death and resurrection to their unique cultural settings, making them powerful guides for how we might do so ourselves today. So, with that in mind, I just want to dive in, okay? We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people, and where? Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Ephesians begins with what was a very standard ancient letter greeting in these days, introducing its author and its recipient. Who is the author? Paul, the Apostle Paul, critical biblical figure, who after a mystical experience with Jesus, transformed from Christian persecutor to the first Christian missionary, traveling the Roman world, planting churches in all these places, spreading the gospel. And he communicated with these churches via what? Via letters, like Ephesians, which we know from context clues that he wrote from a Roman prison probably near the end of his life life, right, before he was executed by said Roman Empire. Now, as for the recipients, context clues also reveal that Paul intended for this letter to be distributed to multiple churches throughout this area called Asia Minor. However, he addresses it specifically to who? Ephesus, Ephesus the church in Ephesus. 
And that's because Ephesus was incredibly influential, largely because of where it was located. You see, as the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Ephesus acted as Rome's gateway to the entire continent of Asia. It's administrative, capital, trade center, and communication hub for essentially this entire part of the world. Thus, Paul sends his letter to this church first and foremost for it then to be distributed throughout the region because that is what you would have done at this time in this place. That's how important this city was as a hub for Asia Minor. Y'all tracking with me on that? But that's not all because you see, Ephesus was also influential culturally too. Does anyone know why? Who here has ever played the game Seven Wonders? What was located in Ephesus? Pick it up. Pick up the picture. The Temple of Artemis, the goddess and queen of the cosmos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Probably one of the largest temples in the entire world in Paul's day. A famous pilgrimage site for this entire part of the globe in a site that made Artemis worship economically critical to the economy of Ephesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. Thus, 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 you have to understand that all of these multifaceted realities impacted Paul, who visited Ephesus twice and even lived there for three years during one of his missionary journeys. It was his home base. Because you see, through the church, though the churches in Asia Minor thrived, they actually grew like wildfire. Their success produced conflict with Ephesus' elites, who believed, quite frankly, that two things accounted for the success and the greatness of their city. The first was, who wants to guess? Artemis, the goddess who kept them safe because of that big temple that they kept for her. And the second was the Roman Empire, who poured into them all the trade that was going out east. Artemis, Rome, the central causes in an Ephesians person's mind of why their city was renowned. So with that in mind, do you imagine that it was popular when Paul sparked this region-wide Jesus revival, challenging polytheism, Roman authority, and Ephesus' religious economy all at the same time? No, it was not. In fact, we read in Acts 19 that the leader of Ephesus' silver guild and their idol makers at one point actually incited a mob to try to kill Paul because he was undermining the economy of the city, the religious practice of the city, the entire idea of what it meant to be an Ephesian in this time. This is what the Christ story challenged in a city like this. All to say what you need to understand is that though flourishing, these churches existed in a truly hostile part of the Roman Empire. And all of this context shapes Ephesus and Ephesians dramatically. It gives this letter this very broad focus much broader than we'd expect from, say, a letter like Philippians, which was written to a single community. But even more than that, what it does is it makes this letter, letter probably Paul's most distinctly Gentile writing. I mean, this is a letter that is meant to be read for non-Jews, trying to figure out this Christ story in a non-Jewish empire, in a non-Jewish part of the world. Its content is so unique. In it, Paul reframes Hebrew concepts around these universal Greek ideas, these Greco-Roman images. He meets them where they are at, communicating Christ's gospel and story in the most Gentile means of understanding kind of themes, many of which he introduces in this next section 
with a dense praise of God that's actually in Greek one long sentence written as dramatic oration. Because remember, most of these people were illiterate. So when you got a letter from Paul, the whole point was they were to get up in front of the crowd and read it out loud. So we are gonna read through this incredibly dense text all the way through. You guys buckle up, bear with me, and I'm gonna come back and comment on it after we have gone through it, amen? Pray for me, y'all. Verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, amen. Everyone got all that? Uh, I'll see you guys next Sunday. No. It's a dense text, so I'm just gonna try to walk through it broadly. What we find here is that Paul praises God for everything that he's done through Jesus, particularly for these four spiritual blessings, for choosing, adopting, redeeming, and revealing mysteries to his people. Terms that I believe Paul uses to, in effect, summarize God's intentions for all of creation. Let me tell you what I mean. You see, scripture begins with God creating the universe and everything in it before calling it good. After that, he creates these little things called human beings, made uniquely in his image, that is creatures designed to mirror his character through how they live and work in relationship with him according to his will alone. That is what it meant to be human at the beginning, and this is the image of the universe that God intended at the beginning. The cosmos defined by a Hebrew word, shalom. This word that in English can mean many different things, but primarily peace, wholeness, unity. All things at peace, whole, united under God's will. Everything is made right. Beautiful, right? Do we stay there long? Sure don't, because humanity is the best. Things fall apart rather quickly. Humanity rebels or we sin, choosing to impose our wills upon God's world, separating ourselves from others, creation, and our creator, resulting in all kinds of relational brokenness, oppression, violence, injustice, on and on and on it goes. Fundamentally, the shattering of shalom. But does God abandon creation or us to this fate? No. No. God promises to rescue it, to rescue us, to restore shalom throughout the cosmos. Not by starting over, not by magically fixing everything himself. No, God's fundamentally relational. This God who from the very beginning desired to partner with his creation to do his work. Thus, in love, God chooses a people to partner with him in achieving his redemptive purposes. Who is that? The nation of Israel this pocket of humanity, God's chosen people that he called from all the rest of broken humanity to be adopted and redeemed back into the divine family. This pocket of humanity 
that God aimed to transform back into the humans that God intended, children living under his will alone, children who receive and then become conduits of God's shalom to the rest of the world. For Paul, in this passage, what Paul's trying to get at is that this was always God's plan from the very beginning to work through this people to bring about this reunion of all things, this reunion of humanity, creation, this transformation and renewal of shalom, all of which Paul seems to believe came to its fulfillment in who? Bible school answer. Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, as God's Messiah, Jesus fulfilled the intended purpose of Israel's story, living under God's will alone, completing God's rescue in this unexpected way, not by defeating the Roman Empire, not by raising up one tribe, but in his incarnation, reuniting God and humanity. In his sacrificial death, forgiving our sins and freeing humanity from the bondage of that rebellion. In his resurrection, defeating evil and death before being exalted as the king over creation. Inviting God's people to fully re-enter the divine family to, through God's spirit, experience new creation, shalom, and the renewal back into the kinds of humans that God always intended us to be, exemplified in Christ Jesus. That's the story of God in Paul's mind. That's the story of God's people, all of which Paul calls here the mystery of God, revealed through Jesus. And this is where we're going to get to our first context part of Ephesians, because you see in context, this word that he uses here, mysterion, was an incredibly loaded term in the first century in a Greco-Roman audience. That is because mysterion was connected intimately to these things called mystery cults. Anyone a part of one of those today? No, because they don't really exist all that much anymore. These were religious communities, like the cult of Artemis in Ephesus, who claimed secret divine knowledge about the universe that they would only reveal if you went through their hula hoops, if you jumped through all their rules and initiations, if you entered into their secret society. Religious communities defined fundamentally by division and elitism, if you think about it. They saw themselves as separate from and superior to those on the outside, those who weren't let in on the secret. This is what Mysterion would have brought to mind in a Greco-Roman city like Ephesus, and if you notice what Paul does here, it's quite provocative because he turns this word upside down. Does Paul believe that God's mysterion is hidden? That it's only revealed to the elite? No. Paul says, through Christ Jesus, God has made his character, his plans, his mysterion plainly known to everyone from the poorest of the poor to the highest of the high, he has revealed that this universe's story was always pointing in one direction to one pattern, to one reality, the cosmic reuniting of all of creation under the shalom reign of Christ crucified, resurrected, and exalted. A cosmic peace that, as always, God was intending to advance through what? a people, like he always meant to do, right? A new family of restored humans, unified under the lordship of Jesus, 
who finally would fulfill God's purpose in choosing, adopting, and redeeming a people in the beginning to draw humanity back to God through how their lives mirror his character, his goodness, his glory in creation. A pocket of renewed image bearers living as God intended under God's peaceful reign. But notice, thus far, Paul has used some very specific pronouns. That is, us, or we, to describe who received these blessings. And what's really interesting is that in the Greek, what this language implies is that Paul is referring to one specific people who has been brought into this good news story. Who do you think that is? The nation of Israel, which makes sense. Paul is an Israelite. For him, Israel is God's chosen people. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Paul has been retelling the story of his people this whole time. But is Paul writing to other Jewish Christians in this letter? No. So how do you think they feel so far? Do they think they feel excluded from all this great blessing, this awesome story of a God reuniting the cosmos under his peaceful reign? Who here would feel excluded? I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I'm like, good for you, bro. <laughs> Good luck with that, I guess. Paul's doing something here. And this is so fascinating to me. I want you to notice this because he's setting up a twist. Check this out, verse 11. Paul continues, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, who was that? The Jews. Might be for the praise of his glory. Now watch this. And Who? You were also included in Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So, having described Israel's story in Christ's cosmic renewal, Paul makes this dramatic turn through Jesus, you, Two, my Gentile siblings, were invited in. You, too, were adopted, chosen, redeemed into one united people, one united group, one united divine family. You, too, received God's Holy Spirit producing new creation with you. You, too, have been marked with God's family seal which was a big deal in the Roman culture. Guess who else had a seal? A little guy named Caesar. And guess what it meant if he had his seal on you? Who do you think owned you? Caesar. In other words, Paul states definitively that through Jesus, God has laid claim to all of humanity and creation. All were invited in by grace because God always intended in Paul's mind for Israel to be but the first fruits of a much larger, inclusive story of blessing for these cosmos, one that was always leading to this Messiah who in love would tear down every elitist, exclusionary dividing line within God's family in order to draw who? Everyone and everything back to himself, back to his peace, wholeness, shalom, unity in this here cosmos. That's the mysterion of God revealed through Christ Jesus in Ephesians. And don't worry, y'all, if you feel like you were drinking from a fire hose right now, 
We are going to go back through all of these pieces individually. Paul's going to unpack them in detail throughout this letter. These are major themes that he's introduced. But this is what the book's about. And for today, there's really just two central, overarching themes for Ephesians that, I, that Paul introduces here that I want to really latch on to, that I want us to hold on to as we move through or throughout this amazing letter. The first is Christ's cosmic lordship, which is a mouthful. Who thinks that sounds like a new agey kind of thing? Which I get. It weirded me out in the first two, and that's because I grew up with a very individualistic view of God's story, a very Jesus and me kind of religion, right? It wasn't about anyone else. It was about my personal relationship with the big guy upstairs. Got me into heaven when I died. That was it. And do not get me wrong. A personal relationship with Jesus is critical. However, what Ephesians is going to beg you to understand is that that is but one part of a much larger story for the entire universe that is much bigger than Mike. Because you see, throughout Ephesians, Paul's going to summon us to this cosmic vision of a God who can't fit inside of human boxes, who's active within every single inch of the universe, who in Christ was revealed as both infinite and anything but distant when it comes to what he's made, who is both bigger than all created things and as close to you as your breath, who is actively and presently working to restore shalom across the entire universe through his king, Jesus Christ. Which, y'all, I get it. It's existentially mind-boggling, right? But, and this is really interesting, it was also something that for Paul's original audience here would have been equally uplifting and provocative. Because first, I want you just to imagine, just imagine being a poor, marginalized Christian in Ephesus and hearing that despite your low status in the empire, what Christ's story is fundamentally about is that you we're living at the center of what has always been God's universal cosmic design for the renewal of all things. Not by happenstance, not because you just got lucky, but because you were loved. By who? By the creator of all things. Do you think that would uplift you as you struggled under the persecution of empire? I would. I think that would change everything about how I saw my world, how I saw my daily suffering. Talk about uplifting. But simultaneously, that's also an idea that would have upended their world politically, socially, economically, culturally, religiously. Because if Jesus is Lord, who isn't? Not Caesar. Yeah. And if Christ gives us peace, who doesn't? Not Artemis. Whew. Christ's lordship means that these cosmos have one king whose claim over us overrules all others. And we don't live in the shadow of one of the ancient wonders. But y'all, we still have Caesars. We still have false gods. We still have idols that demand our allegiance and entice us with offers of false peace. The American dream, greed, political power, consumerism, nationalism. Am I preaching yet? In God's cosmic story revealed through Christ Jesus, we find peace in one place, one Lord, Jesus, our crucified, resurrected, and exalted cosmic king. Can I get an amen? amen? That's the cosmic lordship of Christ that this letter is all about. And that theme, this idea of Jesus 
builds to what I think is Ephesians' most beautiful and second overarching theme throughout the letter. Because you see, for three chapters, what Paul's going to do is he's going to lay out this cosmic reality with some really highfalutin images concerning what, in Ephesians, Christ's movement has always been about. God reestablishing universal shalom. But then, what's going to happen is we're going to see Paul start with this idea that through Christ, God's restoring peace in the cosmos holy, and then between God and humanity, and then between Jew and Gentile, and then between nations and tribal divisions, he starts zooming in. And then in chapter four, he does this really interesting thing, which is that he shifts very abruptly from this very cosmic, ethereal idea to this incredible, practical teaching. He goes from the cosmos to zooming in on how Christ's cosmic peace transforms the tangible daily life of communities living under his name, which seems incredibly jarring when you read the letter. But there's a beautiful logic to this. Because think about it, based on the story that Paul's laid out, where should God shalom first take root in this world? Within a people, right? God's always been working with a people. God's always been calling, choosing, adopting, redeeming a people through which he can be a conduit of grace. So of course, in this story, this peace should take root in the communities through who Christ have entered into God's cosmic family of renewed human beings. Are you tracking with me? You see, Paul believes that Christ's cosmic shalom must first shape the daily reality of the church, what he's going to call in this letter the body of Christ. And that's because in Ephesians, the church ain't some social club, y'all. No, in Ephesians, it's the physical body of our cosmic Lord active on earth. How we relate to each other is going to become Paul's idea of how Jesus walks among a broken world, how Jesus heals in a broken world, how Jesus acts in a broken world through this community of people who through God's spirit live out Christ shalom, who are so transformed that they seem like aliens to the surrounding world. Strange little humans living together with otherworldly grace, mercy, love, generosity, unity, and peace. People who embody a different way of being human living together in community where the worst attributes of our broken condition are weeded out one by one. Violence, retaliation, greed, injustice, tribalism, judgmentalism, selfishness, hate, that we become the pocket where God starts doing some pruning on this whole human thing. And that's what brought banshees to mind. See, in it, I saw the human story. Quite, I'll be honest, I saw my story, right? Eye for an eye, resentment, retaliation, misery. But I think even worse than that, I also saw what's often been the church's story. When it tries to change the world without getting God, change it first. Allowing itself to be adopted by empires, not the kingdom of God. When Christ's body turns to idols and Caesars for its peace, for its leadership, rather than its head, rather than its one true Lord, the one who redeemed them and gave us shalom as our inheritance, as our birthright. I've seen that so often, and y'all, it creates tragedy every single time. The community that's supposed to be the place where heaven is grown on earth becomes a little pocket of hell for the outsiders, the oppressed, the marginalized, and those who we just don't like very much. Has anyone seen that in the world? In Ephesians, whispers to us across the galaxies, it whispers another way. 
Because in love, your God invited you into this renewed family of restored human beings who have found and become pockets of God's shalom in a world that desperately needs it. That's the invitation of Ephesians. And y'all, that's good news. Am I right? Can I get an amen? So, as we head into worship and as we head into this series, I just challenge you to reflect. In this season, where do you need peace? Where do you need to become peace? Where do you need to hear that your king is making all things new? And above all, where do you need to accept your place in God's family of shalom? Because you're invited in just like everyone else. All you have to do is say yes. Amen. 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 Let's worship.